Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. Do you know someone who's been hurt in the past and can't let it go? They aren't able to move on with their life. Or maybe they wanted something really badly, but they didn't get it. Either way, they're stuck. This episode is for that person. Dr. Fred Luskin is the author of the book, Forgive for Good. He is also the director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Projects. He joins us today to discuss why forgiveness is a key component of resilience. In this conversation, Dr. Luskin shares how grievances are formed, how to overcome them, and why we live happier, healthier lives when we forgive others and ourselves. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Dr. Luskin, welcome to 12 Geniuses. You are the director of Stanford University's Forgiveness Project. You wrote the book, Forgive for Good. What sparked your interest in the topic of forgiveness? One, my personal life, I've been meditating, had an interest like as an old hippie in kind of spiritual things. Came out of the peace, love, and granola kind of time. So I, I grew up with that zeitgeist of exploring and like you can be a better human being, you know, that, that the better part of the hippie thing. So that's always been in me. At Stanford, um, I was in the alternative medicine part of the medical school. So we were encouraged to explore things that were different. So again, I started exploring meditation and yoga and, and the, I'm going to say even the values of the heart. We did some research on that. So those things converged when I had to select a dissertation topic. Forgiveness was a good topic, and it tied in with the fact that a few years earlier, I had an almost impossible time forgiving something, and it, it you know, turned my hair gray, so to speak, but it was awful, and I figured that if me, a therapist and, like, 40-year-old, like, reasonably sane person had so much trouble forgiving. <laughs> I, I was hoping I wasn't alone in that. And so those were the three streams that led me to do dissertation work on forgiveness. We are dedicating Season 9 of 12 Geniuses to the topic of resilience. And when you think about resilience, how do you define it? And how does forgiveness fit in to resilience. I mean, there's a lot of good research on, on resilience, and, and there's a lot of streams that use it. So, you know, it's part of grit, which is a quality shown to be helpful to people. It's a core tenet of happiness, because if you can't bounce back from setbacks, you can't be happy. You, you simply you're going to become too defensive and, 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 and fold it to protect yourself. 
I mean, bounce back is a, is a nice, simple metaphor for resilience, but it's the ability to handle what life throws at you without losing sight of your goals and values. You know, that you, you absorb the difficulty and you stay connected to your goals, what you wanted, and your values, how you do it. Like that. But in terms of forgiveness, one of the great impediments to both resilience and happiness is bitterness. A, a, a sense that life didn't give me what I bargained for. Yeah, I think I think that that word impediment is really important because it's it's a blocker, right? And if you're if you're not able to get around that impediment, how can you move on? And I even in your book Forgive for Good, you talk about living in the past, right? You're you're in the present, but you're you're living in the past. Well, you have to get around whatever that grievance is or whatever that whatever you need to forgive somebody for your even yourself for in order to become who you can become. There is some research that if you live in your positive past, it helps resilience. So if you remember your successes or you remember when you were loved, then you're more likely to have resources to handle the obstacles, uh, a.k.a. resilience. When you live in your failures or your mistreatments, that bitterness holds you back from resilience. So one of the things that I, you know, very simply teach the athletic teams that I work with is like if you're standing here at the free throw line and you're nervous, just remember the last time you made a free throw. Like it's that simple. And you'll you'll calm yourself down. Or remember for the college kids, you know, your parents are gonna love you whether the shot goes in or not. They're gonna love you. Your boyfriend's gonna love you. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not life and death, but it centers you when you connect with success or love in a way that keeps your mind, the body in alignment, and you're more likely to make a free throw. But the same thing occurs in life. So if you have a setback, but you know you're loved, that that a lot that gives you a not just a motivation, but a, a mind-body coherence. The forgiveness, unforgiveness rips apart that coherence. I think that's a really important thing to distinct distinction to make because people have asked me, how do you get over imposter syndrome? And I say, well, you know, you get into a novel situation. I just look at all of the successes I've had in the past and lean on those. I figured this out before. So therefore, I'm going to be able to figure this new thing out. <laughs> There's a wonderful and true statement saying, a life well lived is the best revenge. And, and that is so powerful that it's how we live our life now if we're happy with it, if we're successful, if we have good relationships. That's actually the only revenge over the past. That's the only one. 
is for us to be satisfied, free. That's a very powerful but hard model to follow. What, what are some of the common misperceptions about forgiveness? That it's for someone else is probably the biggest. You know, if let's say you say something stupid to me on this interview, and I think, well, he should be better prepared, or what's wrong with him? I'm not necessarily forgiving for you. I'd be forgiving to keep myself healthy and at peace. It's for me. The second thing is, it doesn't mean you have to reconcile with people. So I, just using this silly example, I could say I'll never do an interview with you again, but I can be a total peace with you. You know, like, like the, the forgiveness cleanses my insides. It doesn't say we have to go on the road together. And, and third, it doesn't mean that I condone everybody's errors or mistakes. It simply means that, like, that's life, and I, I make peace with it, and it's okay. And, but the, the biggest one is with not nothings, like, you know, you say something wrong, but forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. People think forgive and forget. That's an absolute mistake. You just remember it differently. So instead of remembering something as the worst thing that ever happened to me, you remember it as a huge challenge and one where I had to dig really deep to figure out what I do next. That's you. Forgiveness is remembering differently, not forgetting. And that's the biggest both challenge and the power of it. Because you're changing your story that you tell yourself, and that's crucial. I've been fortunate to have a number of really, really critical mentors in my life, and one of them is someone you know, Doug Lenick, and he told me that we forgive for ourselves, not for the person we're forgiving, and he attributed that to you, and that changed my life. You can just obsess over something and something that somebody did to you they, they have moved on. <laughs> They're not thinking about that. And yet it is hanging you up. And so when he taught me that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is powerful. This is, this is a life-changing lesson. When what was so devastating to me, I, I struggled for a couple of years to make peace with it. I mean, it was really awful. And one of the things that freed me and this is almost 30 years ago when I was, you know, hashing all this stuff out. But one of the things that freed me was I recognized that we saw the situation so differently that I was never going to convince him that I was right. And I was wasting a lot of energy even thinking that I could, but but here's the, the picture of it that came to my mind that helped me to both let go and realize that, like, I don't forgive for him because I can't. I mean, so I pictured this was 30 years ago. 
that we went to a multiplex movie theater, you know, where they used to have like six or eight different movies playing at the same time. And we went into different movies. So he went into movie on the first floor. I went into a movie on the second floor. And then we came back and we argued about our movie. And I could spend years trying to convince him that his movie was wrong. And I did. And then it hit me one day, well, wait, Fred, if you went in to see, like, Love Story, and he went to see Platoon, you guys are not going to agree very much on what the hell the story is. And that's what you've been doing, is you've been trying to make his story wrong and your story right. But that make that made me helpless. So I I grasped that wow, Fred, you're forgiving. If you forgive, it's to give you more power. You can't do anything about him because he just happily watched his movie. He doesn't. How would he know the movie you saw? But it was instrumental in how I evolved in this. As you were describing that, I'm thinking about politics and the the political division that we have and that so many people are trying to convince people on the other side how they should be thinking, where I, I don't think that that's healthy. And I think we just need to kind of accept, okay, that's your point of view, try to understand it, and then just move on with our lives. It's very challenging when you start talking about a kind of political forgiveness. I am, in fact, now working with a colleague on creating a training for political forgiveness. But it is very complex. One of the things that happens is in politics and in many things is you end up in tribes. You know, and and you end up in groups, you know, Democrats, Republicans, Christians, Jews, whatever. And then the identity that you have with the group becomes bigger than trying to find an objective reality. You know, when I first recognized it and, you know, you and I had that brief sports conversation is I recognized it when I was a basketball referee a long time ago. I used to referee high school basketball out here in, in California. And I also did adult, you know, adult men's league, you know, the, the leagues that would play at night. And it was very interesting because I realized that, one, um, my calls were not perfect but they were almost always better than the people on the teams. <laughs> and the fans. Because <laughs> the people on the teams were too identified with their team. So it colored their perception so fully that it was us versus them. You know, like, like I'd call a foul, you know, and you'd be, there would be a breakaway and somebody would try to block the shot, and I'd call a foul. And again, even then I knew I wasn't perfect. I mean, I don't have all the angles, and 
happened so fast. And, but when I saw the reactions of the, both the teams and the fans, they were always based on their tribal alliance, not on whether the call was good. And so that was one of those first teachings of, wait a second, these people really believe they've been robbed, even though, let's just say, if there was replay cameras then, it might take somebody four minutes to figure out what they were robbed. Well, if it takes you four minutes to figure out on replay, you weren't robbed. One of the central points in your book is this idea of a grievance, and I want you to define what a grievance is and talk about how it's formed. A grievance is our reaction to a situation that makes us not responsible for how we're reacting and blames whatever it is or whoever it is for our discomfort. So it's like a, a horrible example. Somebody's drunk, goes through a red light, smashes into us. The formation of a grievance is it's their fault, which objectively it might, you know, certainly sounds like it. But because it's their fault, I'm not responsible for like how I, res I deal with this, how I feel about it, what stories I tell. So while they did an action that's awful, the grievance allows me to miss the part that I'm responsible for or the part that I can change. And then the grievance gets locked into how I talk about it. So instead of saying a person ran a red light drunk, which is abhorrent, and they should be punished, but or and I had like, you know, I reacted badly and I suffered for years and I harmed myself by what happened. I leave all that piece out and the story is they did bad, they're responsible for it, and they're responsible for how I feel after. And that creates a web of both suffering and once that's in place, it's almost impossible for us to see around it and say, well, wait a second. Yeah, that accident happened five years ago. You don't have to be limited by it anymore. I, that's, the, that's what the grievance story is. It, get, it keeps us limited to our reaction to something that was a short-term reaction, but that shouldn't be the long-term reaction. There's no one who's listening to this now who doesn't know somebody who can say, I'm this way because of my childhood or because of this relationship or something like that. And just understanding this idea of grievance and how that might be holding that person back from being who they can become or should become is is really really powerful. Why do you why do you feel some people develop grievances and others don't? Is there something biological 
or within their experiences that make them more predetermined to that? Well, it's multifactorial. Some people come from cultures that are more grievance-oriented. You know, just both small cultures and big cultures. The Amish people, 15 years ago, when that guy came in and shot up the church and the community offered forgiveness, or the, the church in Charleston, South Carolina, five years ago when the guy came in, they had a, a, a small culture that wasn't grievance-oriented. If you watch so much of American media, like I don't mean like objective media, but movies and TV shows, they're all about grievances, all about let's go hurt this person, let's get somebody to kill them, let's they're all about this collection of grievances. So those are very different examples in the big picture. In the smaller picture, we come from families. And families demonstrate to us how to handle disappointment and difficulty. So families, our mom and dad show us how to argue, how to fight, whether to forgive, how they talk about each other. That's that's immediate teaching in grievances. Families have grievances with other families. Or, you know, they tell you grandma's terrible. Or mom says, you know, dad's parents are terrible. You learn from your family. And then you get lessons from your family about you know, some families say if somebody says something not nice to you, beat them up. Other families say sticks and stones will hurt your bones. You know, so you get that training. And then each of us has different bodies that respond physically to stress. The more of a hot reactor you are, the more quickly the stress response comes. And the more powerfully it comes, the harder it is to let go of a grievance. My parents got divorced when I was three years old, and I went through my entire childhood without either one of them ever saying something bad about the other person. And I know that 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 is an unusual experience. Maybe it's becoming a little bit more common now, but I'm so grateful for that because because I have... I just have a much better approach to relationships. and Well, you also learn, and this is the one of the key teachings, is that divorce doesn't have to be awful. No. No, it doesn't. In fact, I'm better off. I, I have four parents who love me very much who I love very much, who have taught me different things. I actually am a better person as a result of it. And any of my friends who go through a divorce, I always try to help them understand, particularly if there are kids involved, and there generally are, your former spouse is not what's important. And your feelings toward that, it's all about your children. So you you have to get past these grievances, these challenges that you have. It's that that's what's important. That's you, you're describing 
an incredibly powerful teaching of how to handle disagreement, how to handle endings, and how to handle, let's just say, hey, I made a mistake. I didn't marry the right person, but I'm still responsible for my behavior. If if I made a mistake and married the wrong person, why should I punish them for the next 10 years? Yeah, it's, it's so powerful. So it, we've talked about grievances and how they're formed and why some people can't let you can get past them. Let's talk about the recommended process or set of techniques for forgiving. Well, the, the grievance story is adjustable in a couple of very simple ways, which is one, you have to become aware that you have a grievance story. Like, and it's sometimes good just to ask a friend, you know, do I bitch about the same thing all the time? Like, that's just a simple, if so, the answer is you have a grievance. It's not a crime. But one of the simplest strategies is to use a relaxation practice, either while you're telling the grievance story or when it's done, just breathe and quiet down and realize that, oh, okay, I don't have to be upset about this. I don't have to re-upset myself every time I talk about it. So that's one. And two, the, the other really easy thing is when you're not upset about it, try different stories. So if you have one way of talking about, let's say you had bad parents who, you know, dissed each other every time you saw them and they harmed you because of that. So if you've told the story 275 times about what terrible parents you have. Today, when you're not triggered, just practice telling somebody, you know, I really feel for my parents. They were too stuck. And boy, they must have suffered from it. Or, you know, I learned some grit from the, what they taught me. Or this has been a big challenge for me to get over. Or you know, I wonder what happened between them that made them so bitter. Like you can practice all sorts of different stories so that you're not stuck in the grievance story. You realize that, oh, okay, yes, this is one good story about the situation, but there's 50 good stories about the situation, and then you're much freer, much freer. I can remember back in earlier in my career where I made a mistake and I had a really difficult time forgiving myself. So how does forgiving oneself differ from forgiving others? Again, there's a couple of criteria. One is some of the ways we were raised. Some of us are raised where it makes more sense to be critical of ourselves. Some of us are raised in ways that make us more critical of others. So and others of us are raised in an environment where everybody's acceptable. You know, it's like, and some of us are raised in really awful environments where nobody's good and everybody's criticized and harsh. So we all start from literally one of those points of view. 
But if we find ourselves that we just have a habit of being tougher on ourselves than we are necessarily of others, one of the ways you can look at that is say, well, what am I saying? What kindness am I giving to other people to excuse their behavior that I'm not giving to myself? So if you're married, you know, and you see your your partner screws up, and, and you look at them and say, well, you know, they did the best they could, or they were busy, or they've got a lot in their plate, or I know they're not perfect. But then you screw up and you give yourself the third degree. And on a moment, just say, well, how would I have reacted if this was them? And you can teach yourself. You can teach yourself because it's already in you. The second practice is for self-forgiveness. The really important piece is the making of amends, not the feeling bad that if you're upset with yourself because you screwed up or you failed or you let someone down, that can be a really good thing. Like it could be your conscience and you don't want to get rid of that. What you want to do is say, okay, let's say I was late three times for dinner this week, and I hurt my family. Minor thing. What you want to do is offer an absolute sincere apology. Maybe say, well, because I'm late, I'll do the dishes five days this week and not just three to show you how much it means to me. And then figure out what you did that got you to be late and change it. So then you're losing the unforgiveness to help you make things better. And that can be its positive purpose. Okay, what is this saying? What am I saying where I let either myself or other people down? Good thing to make them make that right. And then you can let yourself 100% off the hook. Yeah, for me, it was you know, one of those situations where I just couldn't get past it. And, and I was young too, you know, to, to be fair. And it really sidetracked me for months and months, you know, just kind of obsessing over this failure. And, and then, then I, you know, worked with Doug and he helped me understand that, yes, you need to forgive yourself. And how are you going to be successful in the future if you don't do that? But it was a good lesson for me. I wonder how you respond to somebody who says if, Something like if I forgive my person, if I forgive the person who has given me this grievance or done me wrong, I'll look weak or I will lose. You may be weak. I mean, but the weakness would not be in the forgiving. It would be in the golding of the grudge. It's, it's okay to be hurt by people. There's nothing unusual about that. And it's okay to be vulnerable to things and people. That's part of being human. When you hold on to that for a long time and create a grievance, then you're using the negative energy, the anger, to make you look strong, but you're not actually strong. If you were strong, you'd let it go and move on. You deal with it, you do the best you can, you let it go. That's what strong is. You know, it's like, hey, 
you gave me your best shot. I'm done. But the weakness is in the, the thinking that the anger or the bitterness makes you stronger, and it doesn't. It actually deteriorates you physically. So you're physically and emotionally not quite as capable. Um, that's one piece. The other piece is that there's nothing wrong with being assertive. So it's not like if you forgive, you suddenly become a doormat. What you do is you make, you, you see reality, which is sometimes, sometimes I do lose. And that's part of being human, and that's okay, because everybody loses sometimes. I mean, it's not like there's no way to always win. And you can even practice that sometimes in traffic, you know, by thinking, boy, I'm losing here. I want to be someplace. There's four million other people. I'm not getting there. So in that way, I've lost. It's practice to deal with life. It's resilience. In your book, you wrote, when you've rented too much space in your mind, then you have a grievance. And I, I thought back when I read that to an interview I did with Harry Samet. He worked for the FBI and he was the one who arrested Zacharias Musawi just weeks before the 9-11 attacks. And Zacharias Musawi is a member of Al-Qaeda. And during that interview, Harry kept talking about grievance, people who have these really deep grievances. And he's talking about terrorists and he's talking about people who perpetrate these shootings, mass shootings and things of that nature. And I just wonder how can we societally help people who have these types of grievances, these deep, deep grievances where they want to do incredible harm to our society? The most valuable we can do is not behave that way ourselves. So raise children who don't behave that way. In your work life, don't create grievances. With your partner, resolve things kindly and give them the benefit of the doubt so that our, like as Gandhi says, my life is my message. That's harder to do than publicly complain about something, but it's more powerful. Then there are, like you're, you could do something with what you're doing with a podcast, you know what I mean? You can, you can make your contribution to world peace, so to speak, but it has to start with us. We have to live it before our words have any conviction. And we have to demonstrate it in our small circle before we can demonstrate it in a big circle. And that's a hard lesson for people because they love seeing the problem as outside of themselves. You know, nobody has fully figured out, you know, how to change human nature. <laughs> and, and I don't think you and I are going to be the ones to figure it out. Yeah, not, not in the next eight minutes anyway. 
<laughs> and e even in, here's an example. If you're in a, a political discussion with somebody where you 100% disagree, you can still practice tolerance. Yeah, I, I think it's so important. There are many people I disagree with politically who I love. And I just at the end of the conversation, we'll debate back and forth. At the end of the conversation, I still love them. I haven't changed their mind. They haven't changed my mind, but they've given me something to think about. And I've ju I, I've had that conversation without judgment. That's what's important is, you know, I don't get upset about it. Had, I had a conversation once. I was visiting, I think, I don't even know where I was visiting. I was giving a talk. And I'm from like the bluest of blues areas, you know, Northern California. And I met this guy. It was at an investment conference. And he was from Salina, Kansas, like the reddest of the red. And, and we had about a 20-minute political conversation where we disagreed about almost every, I mean, almost everything. I was like for abortion and he was against it. And I was like against the death penalty. And he it was just didn't even matter. But we both had a, a belief that, you know, people disagree. And for about 20 minutes, we really practiced, you know, never agreeing, but at least listening, trying to understand. It was a nice practice that, and I, I felt friendly with him. And if I ever was in Salina, Kansas, I'd say hello. But those are the kind of practices that we can do in our lives. I want to read you a quote that, appeared in the media shortly after the Emanuel Church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. You mentioned that earlier in the, the podcast. It came from Nadine Collier, who lost her mom during that shooting. And this is what she said to the perpetrator. I forgive you. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. I still, I just, I just can't imagine myself being able to do that. But can you talk about what Nadine, the person who, who said that to the perpetrator, got as a result of, of articulating that? I can give you two answers to that. One is, if this person is, let's say, spiritual or religious, where she talks about soul. I don't know what a soul is, but I, I've met enough people and I have some sense of myself in it that there's a part of us that is exactly the same in every human being. And so this person may have connected with that connection and sameness inside of them and saying, the part of me that's in you and in everybody, that part can't but wish everybody well because we're all the same. So that's a piece of like religious coping, spiritual coping, which is you're not just identified with your small self, 
but you also identify with a bigger something that's in everybody, and that bigger something doesn't hate. It, it, it just can't. But the, the separate person is a different thing. From the second, from the separate person's thing, it's I release you so that I free myself. That's really what it is. It's like I know what it's like to hate and blame, and it's harming me. Like, yeah, you may have done terrible things, and you may be this. All that's true, but I'm your prisoner because of it. And when you let that go, it's like I'm letting myself out of jail. But that's what's so powerful. I have you for one more minute. What's the most important thing you've learned about forgiveness in the years since you wrote Forgive for Good? One is it's a teachable and practicable skill. So it's not in the religious world. It's not weird, philosophical. It's I can practice this. It can be taught to me. That's crucial. Number two is the most important place to practice forgiveness is with people you love, not with the handful of people who may have harmed you because they didn't like you. They don't matter so much. But what you want to practice forgiveness for is so you're you let your kids off the hook. You let your partner off the hook. You let your parents off the hook. You let your friends off the hook so that you have a really good life. That's that's the power of forgiveness. Awesome. That's a great place to end. Dr. Luskin, thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will be back next week with Sergey Young for a discussion on the science and technology that is radically changing the way we age. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening and thank you for being a genius.